This is the Saturday to Sunday Football Podcast. This is where it all counts. This is why we're here. This is why each one of us are here. And now, here's your host. Welcome back to another edition of the Saturday to Sunday Football Podcast. I am Paul Pertichese, and joining me this evening is special guest back joining us, and that is Mr. Mark Schofield. Mark, welcome back to the Saturday to Sunday Football Podcast. Paul, it's great to be back with you. I'm always excited to come on. Um... You know, always excited to talk quarterbacks with you guys. I know we're going to dive into this class. We're going to revisit, I think, a quarterback from last year. I'm not going to spoil that or tease that too much, but we got some, some, you know, takes to revisit from the 2019 draft class. So always fun. Um, always excited to be with you and can't wait to dive in. Absolutely. So this class is, let's just get right into it because I think this class is fascinating. Obviously, the overview of the class, it looks like a really intriguing class with a couple star names at the top, a couple other guys who can push their way into that top 10 mix. What is just your over, you know, far away blimp view in terms of this quarterback class as a whole? Yeah. And, you know, we sh- I should put some context to it. As a quarterback guy, I am always going to tend to be higher on classes as a whole, mostly because, you know, I dive deep into these guys, get into the weeds on some of them. And, you know, I always come away thinking, look, there, there are paths to NFL careers for most of these guys. Now, we all know that the NFL is a business. It's a numbers game and it might not always pan out. But I always tend to believe that there are ways that we can see, you know, 10, 11, 12, 13 or so of these guys have lengthy NFL careers. You know, it's interesting because – the rise of Joe Burrow has, I think, really impacted how people view this class. Because when we think back to, say, last summer, it was Tua, it was Herbert, and then people were talking themselves into Jordan Love at the time. People were signing, getting excited about a Cole McDonald at the time. You know, people like I wrote about Joe Burrow last summer, but as much as I sort of liked what I saw in bits and flashes, I never saw this coming. And so he has really sort of shaken this up in a way that nobody saw coming. You know, the rise of Burrow is real. It's not a one-year flash in the pan kind of thing. There were glimpses of it we saw from him in, you know, his 2018-2019 tape that, you know, you could see it potentially coming together. Maybe not like this, but you could see reasons why teams might like him. And so it's been a fascinating class to study. Um, I I think for a lot of the guys in, say, that day two range, scheme fit is going to be a huge part of the equation for them because you get into some guys that I think are more schematically dependent than others. But overall, I'm excited about this group. I would tend to be excited about this group, um, but I think it has a ton of potential top to bottom. Yeah, absolutely. And the Joe Burrow conversation is so fascinating because like you, I watched him last summer and I walked away saying – this guy's got some intriguing skill set to him. Yeah. I could see him as a guy that maybe is a late day two, early day three guy. And then I can't remember a mediocre rise what of what Joe Burrow did this year. I mean, we could talk a whole hour about Joe Burrow. So there's a couple things I want to ask you. One, what is it about his game that that so much improved this year? Was it just the perfect storm of Brady calling the plays there and the skill players and then him just kind of developing his all-around game? Was it just a couple other things that stood out about you? You know, and then what is it, if if you were going to try to nab a few things that really make Burrow a special prospect, what do you think they are? Yeah, it's a fascinating question, Paul. And I think you can almost answer the two questions in the same vein because one of the things that really stood out this year watching Joe Burrow was his pocket management 
and his ability to sort of use his feet to create plays, but keep his eyes downfield and just handle pressure extremely well. And then you look at how they changed their offense under Joe Brady, where, you know, two years ago, most of their offense was max protection, you know, seven guys into block, sometimes eight guys into block. Last year, overwhelmingly, they were a five-man protection scheme. You know, they were letting guys come. And it was up to Burrow, if there was an unblocked blitzer, to handle it either by getting the ball out quickly, using his mind and reading it, or using his feet to extend plays. And so what's gotten people excited about Burrow are traits that he's shown, that ability to handle the pocket, that footwork, that athleticism. You know, he's not a super athlete, but he's sort of Brady-esque in a sense or Romo-esque in a sense where he's athletic enough with his feet where he can create and extend. But it's also because of the Brady scheme where they asked him to do that. And so we didn't get a chance to see that when he was, you know, a a junior. And, And so... That, I think, is a big part of his really attributed to the rise. I also think that, look, the accuracy, you know, the ball placement, and you could point at efficiency ratings and completion percentages, which, you know, he was at or near the top in all of those categories. But when you study him on film, he puts the ball where it needs to be almost every single throw. And, yeah, there are interceptions here and there, mistakes here and there, but sometimes even his interceptions are impressive. And so – I think it's the ball placement and the accuracy as well as that ability to handle the pocket, the ability to create with his legs just enough, the ability to fight through traffic and not give up on plays, but keep his eyes downfield, always ready to throw. That ties into his footwork, which is another thing that I love about him, whether it's on RPO designs or straight dropbacks. His feet are always in position to throw. Even if he has to make that mesh fake to his left, he's always so adept at snapping those feet back and throwing back to his right if he has to. And so that makes for an ideal quarterback. He's clean mechanically. People might din him for arm talent or arm strength. That might get to an ideal scheme situation. But I think for 95 98% of what NFL offense is going to ask him to do, He's more than suitable to run it. Yeah, I mean, I love what the major point that you brought up there that I want to harp on is in in the scouting notebook when I uh, profiled Joe Burrow in the how he wins section, I have starred, has the ability to keep his eyes downfield as he navigates the pocket with great pocket presence and decision-making to find the open receiver. If I was just going to say one sentence to describe Joe Burrow, why I like him as a prospect, that would be my one sentence. So I love the fact that you kind of harped on a lot of those things that I find are his best attributes attribute as a prospect. I mean, he has tons of them as you went into there, but that's the one that I think I keep coming back to of why I think he's going to be such a special prospect at the next level. And you mentioned schematic fit. Let's say, let's say the Bengals do what most expect. Obviously, you know, we've seen things change. It's amazing sometimes how we're only, you know, four or five weeks away from the draft, but just how much sometimes can change in those four or five week periods. Do you think that if, if Zach Taylor runs a similar offense to what they run with the Rams, you know, obviously that's where he came from. Do you think Burrow fits well in that type of scheme and system? I think so. I mean, I think when you look at sort of the basic constructs of NFL offenses, you've got, you know, your West coast tree, your Aaron Perkins tree, your Coriel type tree. And then, you know, obviously branches off of those. We might consider, you know, the McVeigh, you know, Zach Taylor school, more of a branch off the, the West coast tree. I think he fits pretty much in any sort of system other than, you know, an Arians core, you know, air Coriel downfield passing game. Like that's probably not his best fit. I think he could still do it, but it would have to be a bit more schemed up in a sense, you know, because he's not the guy that's going to, 
you know, challenge deep windows, 25, 30 yards downfield, tight throwing lanes and things like that. But for what Zach Taylor is going to be asking them to do, you know, some boot concepts, a lot of space and concepts, a lot of super space and concepts, you know, a lot of those West coast concepts we know and love stick Ohio, Omaha, all that kind of stuff. Yeah. That's ideal for him, you know, and what it fits in terms of his game style is the process and speed as well, because, those types of offenses, they task the quarterback with making quick reads, quick decisions, getting the ball out on time in rhythm to let guys create after the catch. That's what Joe Burrow can do. And if they do manage to get A.J. Green back in the fold, then that gives you somebody that can stretch the field a bit vertically with some design shot plays. And if he can get a chance to you know, make some deeper throws with touch, with timing, with a little bit of air under them, that's going to work in the National Football League. That's all they'll really need from him. So, yeah, I think the Cincinnati fit makes a ton of sense. If this were a draft where, say, Arians was picking first, I'd be a bit more hesitant about saying definitively that, yeah, he's the first overall pick. But I think in Cincinnati, the fit makes sense. Yeah, and I'm excited for that offense. I think that they're a team that could really show a lot of improvement very quickly on the offensive side of the ball. I think they're going to have an improved offensive line. I'm sure they're going to still put some more resources into that, but obviously their first round pick last year missed the whole year. So they get the offensive lineman from Alabama. You know, they get AJ Green back if they franchise tag him. So I'm, I'm interested to see how he fits in that. And I think that they could, you know, they have a lot to do on the defensive side, but I think on the offensive side of the ball, the Bengals could be interesting team, uh, put up some points and really make things interesting in their game. So yeah. let's turn this to let's turn this to Tua because I feel like the conversation around Tua has so much been about the medical in terms of, you know, major media because, you know, we're trying to fit, find out information and it's such Obviously, that's the big topic to talk about, but I don't want to talk about that because we don't know. We, we right. truly don't. You know, we're not in there in the medical exams. So I want to turn this back to him on the football field because I feel like no one's talking a lot, you know, in terms of the major outlets about him as a football player and what he brings to the table. What are some of his best assets and attributes that he brings to the football field? And in your opinion, if the medicals were perfect, how close is the Tua versus Burrow conversation? Is Tua above him for you? Is Burrow, if the medicals weren't a question? Yeah, and we'll start there. I think if the medical, you throw the medicals out, I think I'd still, I would still have Burrow one, Tua two, but I think it would be close. Um, because when you watch Tua Tungavailoa as a prospect, there are things that you can see will work in the National Football League, regardless of the fact that he was playing with NFL talent at the wide receiver spot. Like a lot of people are saying, look, you know, he's got three first round wide receivers at his disposal. You know, he's got NFL talent around him. He should have been more successful. He was very successful as it was. Like you can't really hold that against him because you look at the offense they were running, the things he was asked to do. It's a lot of the stuff we were just talking about with Burrow reading the field, getting the ball out quickly, and running NFL concepts. And people might say, yeah, there's a ton of RPOs. That's an NFL stuff now. You know, this idea of you have to be running a pro-style offense to be successful in the National Football League. What do you think Burrow's going to be doing? I mean, what do you think Joe Brady's going to be calling in Carolina? Like, they're going to be running RPOs. They're going to be running these designs that task the quarterback with doing what? Reading the defense and making a decision based off what the defense shows him, which is basically what we often consider a pro-style offense to be. No, I love his quick release. I love the ball placement for the most part. I think he's very accurate in the short and intermediate areas of the field. I think he has an NFL arm. You might give him an edge on the arm strength and arm talent over Joe Burrow. I think that the athleticism, while it is a bit of a double-edged sword, it does help him 
as he makes that transition to the National Football League because he will have that ability to extend plays. Sometimes I do think, though, on the negative side of the ledger, you know, he relies on it a bit too much. There might be times when Burrow will fight in the pocket a bit more. Tua might pull it down and try to create when he had opportunities to stay, to click and climb, to fight in the pocket itself. And so I think that's a balancing act he's going to have to get used to, especially when, while we're not relying on the medicals here, you know, you do have to wonder about injury history, like a long-term NFL career for him is going to require him to fight in the pocket a little bit more and not expose himself outside of the pocket. But I think similar to Burrow, pretty scheme diverse. I mean, I, I, I think, you know, for him, like the vertical-based offense would be a better fit, I think. But I think he's diverse schematically where he could run most offenses. Alabama's offense has some time and rhythm elements to it as well. So if you were to somehow fall to an Aaron Perkins scheme like New England, you know, he could run that offense as well. Between the lines, he's a fairly clean prospect for me. It's just the medical stuff. We don't know about that. If it all checks out, I'm fine with him coming off the board very early in this draft. I wouldn't say Washington at two just because I think they are do the, they should do the smart thing, stick with Haskins, draft Chase Young or Jeffrey Okuda, and just roll with that. But, yeah, I think if the medicals come out, he's a top five pick. Yeah, I mean, one of my favorite attributes about him is his touch that he throws on the passes. Yeah. I love, you know, I feel like that's something that will translate. The one thing that I'm interested to see is I feel like sometimes at Alabama, he knew his level of, of athleticism plus the quality of the offensive line. He was able to sometimes go off script a little bit. I feel like he's got to be careful like Kyler Murray we start at the NFL level to not run himself into big sacks right. sometimes trying to make that hero play and or, trying to make that miracle play. Yeah. And like another example of, you look at, he just threw three interceptions this past year and you know, one of them was a misread. Like this is another thing I probably should mention. Like, I feel like he made the mistake of assuming too much. Like he would read a defense and think, okay, well this is what they're in. And then post snap, he wouldn't reconfirm what his eyes or what the safeties would have told him. Like he had an interception, I think, against Texas A&M in the red zone, where he thought it was just going to be a cover two against the Haas concept. He thought the backside safeties was going to stay over that vertical, and he didn't look him off. He just gave him a cursory glance, and that guy jumps the seam route he throws in as a pick. So there's that issue. And then, like you mentioned, Paul, that the sort of hero ball, the pick he threw against Tennessee, where he gets pressured. And he does a good job of making a guy miss in the backfield. But then it's like, well, just throw it away. It's first and goal. But instead, he tries to play that hero role. He forces a throw into the end zone and it gets picked off. Like, he's going to need to dial that stuff back. But I'm okay with a quarterback that will do that in college because I'd rather be sitting there with a rookie saying, look, maybe you got away with that on Saturdays. You're not going to get away with it on Sunday. So just dial it back a bit. It's an easier conversation and an easier fix than telling a guy, look, you can be more aggressive, right? Like it's just easier for guys to dial it back, I think, than for risk averse people to start playing more aggressive. So I think that will work out for him in the end. But you're right. He has to sort of learn to play for second down or play for, you know, in the next drive. Don't be a hero. It's not going to work all the time in the NFL. Yeah. And I love a couple of points that you just brought up there. I want to circle back to in the in college. I'm more open to players playing like that especially at a place like Alabama you yeah. know your defense can pick you up pick up the right. slack if you make a mistake you know more times than not you can get away with it at the college game because of your athleticism because your skill off you know your wide receivers are so skillful you know you put them in Miami where they don't have a lot of talent around and Bill and the Bills defense and you know Belichick's Patriots defense is going to make you pay for a little bit more of those mistakes but I think you make up a great point you you'd rather try to dial it back than 
try to make someone more aggressive because that's not it's unlikely that you can do yeah. that. And there's times in the game down down six two minutes to go you want a guy who can do what he does and be able to be a little bit of that hero ball and make things happen and at times be willing to make a risky play but sometimes it's going to pay off sometimes it might not but you might need that to to win a game or or have a you know go ahead drive in the final closing minutes of a game or something so i definitely think it's something that you'd prefer them to have than not have for sure yeah i think that's exactly right so let's let's turn this to the next the next wave. And the first question I want to kind of ask is how close do you put the next tier of guys? And in your next tier, assuming assuming that Burrow and Tua are kind of in their own tier, do you put anyone else close to them? And if so, like how do you kind of rank or categorize the next names that we're hearing about from Justin Herbert? to Jordan Love, who obviously this year, you know, very tough eval, you know, his 2019 film, much worse than his 2018 film. You know, are you a Jacob Eason fan or a Jake Fromm fan, or are they even then the next tier below like Herbert and Love? Yeah. So, you know, that next tier of players I have, I'll just sort of name them off and we can sort of start working through them together. Sure. But, you know, I, I've got Eason, you know, then I've got Love, I mean, excuse me, I've got Herbert, Love, Eason, Fromm, Hurts. Like that's sort of the next tier for me. And this is where it starts to get a bit more scheme dependent. Like, for example, Jake Fromm, I think there's like a handful of scenarios where he could have like an NFL starter career. Uh, you know, Indianapolis, Philadelphia, no, Las Vegas, New England, for example, and Chicago. Like, I think those are sort of the situations where if he goes there, like if he goes to Chicago, I'd be surprised if he wasn't the starting quarterback by Thanksgiving. Like, I think like Jake Fromm could run Matt Nagy's offense and run it better than Mitchell Trubisky because what do you need to run Matt Nagy's offense? You need to be quick with your decisions. You need to be decisive and you need to be accurate in the short and intermediate areas of the field. Like, that's Jake Fromm. Like, he could step in and run that offense better than Mitchell Trubisky. Of that, I have no doubt. But there are other offenses where it is going to be much tougher for him. So I, I think like pure West Coast type systems or a system like New England that, again, is while it's Aaron Perkins and, you know, for the most part, it's also quick, get the ball out. That's where it could work. You know, when you look at, you know, Justin Herbert, he was a tough evaluation for a lot of people, I think, myself included, because of what the Oregon offense asked him to do or perhaps more accurately what they didn't ask him to do. You know, they didn't ask him to challenge the middle field a ton. And when he did, it was sometimes there were mixed results. You know, there were times like an interception he threw, I believe it was against Cal, where it seemed like he didn't quite know how to layer throws in the middle of the field between the hash marks, like how to use touch, how to get throws over defenders. So that's going to be an area he's going to need some work on. He showed some promise, you know, down in Mobile for the senior bowl attack in the middle of the field. They got to do it a little bit better. Um, but I still think he's going to need sort of a, a developmental path that would make some sense for him. You know, I think if we assume that the Chargers might be in on him at six, that would might make sense, you know, because they're going to have a bit of a blend between downfield stuff and, you know, West Coast stuff. I think that could work for him. You know, I do think Miami would be a fit. You know, Chan Gailey, obviously one of the first guys to bring the spread to the NFL. So he would, you know, be in an offense that would be somewhat familiar for him. But you're not going to see Justin Herbert making snap reads and decisions in a West Coast type system anytime soon. Like I think you know there's a scheme fit element to him as well. Easton's a guy I struggle with. I think that 
he obviously has incredible arm talent, as does Herbert. Like both of those guys, incredible arm talent. One of my favorite throws from all of these guys is Herbert, a back shoulder throw he made against Cal last year that was like 45 yards on a rope, right hash to left sideline. So it's like really 60 yards on the fly against a like inside leverage defender. It was just incredible. Like both of these guys have cannons. You know, the thing with Eason, he struggles reading the, reading the middle of the field as well, but he was more willing to attack it. Like he was more willing to make throws over the middle of the field than some of these other guys. And it's a situation where is the fact that he was willing to do it and struggled, is that more valuable than somebody that wouldn't attack in the middle of the field at all or would do it rarely? Like that's a balance and act that I sometimes struggle with. I think with Eason, though, the arm talent and the athleticism and the fact that you sometimes see him making those like back to the defense play action plays where he turns his back on the defense, loses track of where everybody is and has to come out of that and make a quick read and throw and does that very well, even in the middle of the field that counts for something. And so that's why, despite some of the recent struggles that we've seen from him, some people are a little bit down on him. I still think there's an NFL future for him. Love man, love. I could see why NFL teams are sort of talking themselves into him. I could see why NFL teams are looking at the arm talent and they're looking at the athleticism and thinking this can work. He had those 17, as he called them, teachable moments last year, the 17 interceptions, and he could have had more. He could have had 17 interceptions the year prior. Like I understand why the league likes him, or at least some pockets of the league like him. I understand why he's going to come off the board sometime in the top 10 or 15. I'm a bit more hesitant on him. You know, I just see like similar repeated mistakes. I see similar moments where you know the arm gets him into some great situations but it puts him into some great situations and you know that aggression is again good but it's sort of that fine line between like you know you have to you have to be appropriately aggressive as a quarterback and there are times when he was just so much so where i wonder if there's even a way to get him out of it like you're gonna have to have belief in your developmental program and your ability as a franchise to develop quarterbacks if you're going to roll the dice on Jordan Love. And some teams, like they, they can do that. Like There are teams where I would say, you know, if he lands in Indianapolis, I think Frank Reich would be able to turn him into a great quarterback. You know, But if there, there could be some other situations where, you know, if he lands in with the Chargers, for example, you know, they don't have a track record of developing a quarterback. Like you've got a new offensive coordinator who's barely been calling plays. Like, I'm a bit more wary of that kind of landing spot, but I will tell you, Paul, that in, in talking to others, you know, down in Mobile or out in Indy for the combine, there will be people that will tell you that they're flipped on those two guys, you know, Herbert and Love. You know, other people prefer Love to Herbert because they might say, okay, well, Herbert, he's more of that Baker type of quarterback, right? Where everything has to be by the book, by the reads. Like he's just going to be a task oriented type of QB, and he might have a nice floor to him. But if you're going to roll the dice and say, look, we're going to try to hit this out of the park, and if it doesn't work, we'll just draft another quarterback in a year or two, we'll bet on the ceiling that Jordan Love brings to the table. And so, you know, where I view quarterbacks, that puts me in a position where I'd prefer Love, um, Herbert or even Eason rather than Love. But people that are willing to roll the dice a bit more, they might roll the dice on Jordan Love, given his aggressiveness and given the arm talent and given the fact that they think they can develop the guy the right way. And then finally, look, there's Hurts. And he's another guy that I think is very scheme dependent. You know, and interestingly enough, I think it might sound a little odd, but 
a vertical-based offense like what Bruce Arians is running, I think might be his best fit. I see his ability to make throws downfield with a touch. I see the ability to extend plays and, you know, scramble drill throws where he's looking downfield for a big splash type play. He's not somebody that's going to quickly process the field. He's a see it, throw it type guy. So he's going to need route concepts that give him a bit more time to decipher the defense and get the ball out of his hands, you know, once he's just, decided what he wants to do with it and once he's sure of what he's seeing. And so I look at him and I think I'd put him in an Arians type system. If I'm Bruce Arians and we say, look, let's run it back with Winston one more time, but maybe we want to draft somebody sometime on day two, I'd draft Jalen Hurts. Like, I think he'd be a great fit for that. I think he might fit into what New England does. Um, It would be a bit more of a developmental curve, but I I think there's a path for Jalen Hurts to be an NFL starting quarterback. And I have come around to that a bit. You know, I think watching the progression of him over the past season and into the combine, he's done some work with his mechanics. They were a lot loopier before the combine. Now, we all know the Blake Borders of the past where, you know, the mechanics were a mess. He fixed them. They're a mess. He fixed them and he never fixed them. But I think Hertz has shown the ability to be a coachable kid. You know, he crushed in the whiteboard session. So, yeah, I think he's gotten himself into that tier as well. Yes. So, so much great stuff there about all five of those guys that you discussed there. I want to, I want to piggyback and, and ask you some follow up questions on a couple guys. So I'll probably go in reverse order a little bit. Jalen Hurts, I think, I think the interesting landing spot that you talked about is Tampa. It's not something I've even given a thought to because I don't think a lot of people when they first view Jalen Hurts think of a vertical based passing offense, but I like a lot of the things that you talked about and at times Hertz can maybe, you know, his ball placement sometimes might not be ideal, but you pair him with those wide receivers. They yeah. all, of, all of a sudden they're expanding the the strike zone a little bit yeah. for a guy that has some inconsistencies maybe with ball placement. That So I think that would be a really interesting thing, you know, and what I keep coming back to with Jalen Hurts and and tell me what what you think is you know, the senior bowl. And honestly, he even looked better. Again, I was just watching on what I could see on TV at the combine. He actually looked better thrown at the combine than I expected him to. Yeah. Jalen Hurts is just kind of one of those players that I don't know if he's ever going to look great in a practice type setting, you know, in, in, in senior bowl practices or even in just a throwing drills, you know, and I don't think Lamar Jackson, if he would have went to the senior bowl a couple of years, I'm not sure and I don't want to compare to players in themselves, but I'm just using it as I don't think Lamar Jackson would have looked great in one-on-one drills on in senior bowl practice I, I, if he was there. But then you get him on the football field, and these guys are using a term from my co-host, Matt Caraccio. These guys just find ways to solve problems on yeah. the football field. Very different ways. I know they're very athletic in that in their own right, but they're different, they're very different style players. But you know, you you watch Jalen Hurts and whether it was at Alabama and now even more at Oklahoma, to me, he just finds ways to solve problems on the football field and finds way to make plays. And isn't that what we're talking about? Move the yeah. chains, put I think, on the board. I think that's exactly right, Paul. And it's it's interesting you brought up the guy that might not look great at one-on-ones or might not look great down during the practice sessions at the senior bowl, but then when the lights come on, it's going to excel. Does that remind anybody of Dak Prescott? You know, because I remember being down for his senior bowl and watching him during the week. And like, again, the things I didn't like about him on film were showing up. Poor ball placement, inconsistency, you know, can't make quick reads and decisions. But then he he's the MVP of the game. And then he goes out and has a season he does as a rookie. And when I went back and revisited my you know, evaluation of Dak Prescott, I had competitive toughness all over my notes. I just didn't weigh it right. I just didn't give it enough weight when I 
was sitting down to do his final grade. And I think that's a lesson that I learned the next draft. Deshaun Watson was QB one and Mahomes was QB two and Watson had the edge because of his competitive toughness. I think that's a big box that Jalen hurts checks because like you said, when the lights come on, like he's going to find a way to win games. He's going to find a way to solve problems. And, you know, maybe it doesn't look pretty during practice. You know, maybe the mechanics aren't always there, but he's a guy that guys will be willing to play for. I mean, and not let like Twitter moments or Twitter videos or whatever, you know, chasing clout counts for a ton. But the fact that we saw that video of him after a win in the weight room, still in the pads, throwing weights around to try to get ready for the next week. Like, yeah, it means a little something to us. Probably means more to his teammates when they're like getting ready to go out that night, getting ready to like hit sorority row and he's in the weight room. Like there's a reason why guys like that become leaders. And there's, you know, people always saw like how he handled the situation in Alabama. Like that's one of those people you just want on your team. So yeah, I mean, Jalen Hurts will find a way to solve problems, find a way to win. There's an NFL team that's going to fall for him. If not many NFL teams that fall for him. Absolutely. And the character and leadership stuff is stuff that we can't quantify, but right. it is, it is so critical. It is yeah. so critical. Oh, yeah. it, like, it, listen, in New York here, if you listen to the whispers and we don't know how their careers are going to turn out and we'll bring up their actual play a little bit later, uh, to, to round out the show. But like, you hear a lot of whispers that the Giants weren't enamored with Wayne Haskins because some of the other stuff right. and they fell for Daniel Jones because they, they liked obviously the athletic traits that and the physical traits that he brought but they like that other stuff too that he you know he came across again this is articles in the new york media so you never really know what to believe but they came it came across as they they really were wowed by the entire person and yeah. i think the stories that came out the dwayne haskins stuff and the, the giants were like really off of dwayne haskins from really early last year i remember talking to you and i was yeah. like so baffled by it because on the football field i was like how are they so turned off by him if you were to believe, and we just kept thinking it's a smoke screen, it's a smoke screen. Right. I, as a Giants fan, I wanted it to be a smoke screen, you know. And then, and then you see some of the stuff this past year. And I don't want to knock him because he was in a tough spot, but some of the body language you saw again, maybe it means nothing, maybe it means something. We'd have no inside knowledge, but you you do realize that that matters so much oh, to the yeah, NFL it's, teams. It's so much more. It is such a huge part of the evaluation. And that's why, like, you know, when I come on shows, like I was on a show last night and the hosts were asking me about, like, you know, for quarterbacks and stuff, like, what, how much do you really read into, like, how they test or how they throw? And, like, you know, I look at the mechanics and stuff like that with Hurts and that stuff matters. But as I said out there, for quarterbacks especially, the biggest part of the combine takes place behind closed doors away from the public eye. It's obviously the medicals and that's huge for all these prospects, but with quarterbacks especially, it's those meeting rooms. It's those whiteboard sessions. And, you know, the Philadelphia Eagles, they put the video of their, you know, hotel meeting at the combine with Carson Wentz up on the website. You can watch that. It's incredible what they ask these guys to do, the questions they ask, the whiteboard stuff. But that's where it really matters. And that's where they also, they're trying to get a sense of the person's leadership ability. Like you're talking about a 21, 22-year-old kid walking into an NFL huddle with, you know, I know Marshall Yanda, he just retired, but the Marshall Yandas of the world looking back at him, is Marshall Yanda or somebody like him going to listen to a Jalen Hurts when he steps into a, into the huddle? Is he going to listen to a Dwayne Haskins? Is he going to listen to a Justin Herbert? And Herbert has been open about the fact that 
leadership is the one of the biggest question marks about him. Now that's something we obviously can't quantify, but he told us down in Mobile, he told us out in Indy, you know, teams want to see that from him. He's reading the book Leadership for Introverts because he's a shy and quiet guy. It's going to be something they're going to want to see from him. And it is a huge part of the quarterback evaluation process. And we can see some of the leadership stuff. You know, like I said, Deshaun Watson, why did I think he was competitively tough and a leader? Well, you see him helicoptering himself against Reuben Foster in the national championship game and bouncing right back up. Yeah, that's a guy that people are going to want to play for. That's a leader. Like some guys can do it. Some guys do it in different ways, but you try to read some of that into these guys and get a sense of it. We don't get all that information. The NFL gets more of it. Sometimes they get it right. Sometimes they don't, but there's a reason why they look for it. It's because it matters. Yeah, absolutely. A couple other things you brought up. I love the fact that you said that uh, Jake Fromm would be perfect in that Chicago uh, Nagy offense because it's interesting because Matt and I have been saying probably for two years now that if – if Jake Fromm was going to become a good NFL starting quarterback, his ceiling is a guy like Alex Smith. So it's a, you know, you talked about that offense, you know, obviously Nagy coming from Kansas city, you know, that's the, to me, that's the, the spectrum. He, he could be a, a great backup quarterback or if everything goes right and he gets put in the right scheme, he can be an Alex Smith type player. He yep. can be a very functional, good starter, you know, who can fit into an offense in a scheme. So I thought that was that was well said. Yeah, I mean, I think for Fromm, the spectrum is sort of like a Colt McCoy to an Alex Smith. Like Perfect. worst case scenario for Jake Fromm is he's your like 10, 8 year backup and he can spot start and win a game or two like Colt McCoy. Colt McCoy's still kicking around in the NFL. You need guys like that. And so that's why I think with Chicago, they still need to upgrade behind Mitchell Trubisky. Either way, Chase Daniel, you know, they seem to be moving away from him anyway. Fromm could be, if nothing else, that guy behind him. And so, yeah, I think, and then like you said, I think that the Alex Smith is perfect, Paul. Best case scenario, like Chicago, he could be that guy, that sort of point guard facilitator type guy that just gets the ball out, out of his hands, gives Allen Robinson finally a chance to get some yardage after the catch when he's not making contested catches all the time on curl, curl routes when he shouldn't be if the ball is coming out on time. And so, yeah, I, I, I think that's perfect. You mentioned Jacob Eason and some of the things that he struggles with. My question I want to follow up with is, do you think some of that is just experience or lack thereof? You know, obviously you had that really long gap between, yeah. you know, a lot of starts. Do you, do you think that's something that, that attributes to some of his concerns that with more time th- that can be improved? Or do you yeah. think it maybe goes beyond that? No, I, I think there certainly is an element to just the experience or lack thereof because he had the long gap, you know, hasn't played a ton of college football as a result of it. And the fact that he is still, it's sort of like when I talked about that little argument I have, that that sort of like one man play in my head where it's like, well, he's challenging the middle of the field more, at least on a numerical basis, more consistently, maybe not as successful as it should be, but he's doing it more than some of the other guys that has to work in his favor, right? I think the chance for him to – the fact that he's already doing it with the level of experience that he has works in his favor in a sense. And so I, I think similar to like I talked about with Love, he's going to need a bit of a easier glide path. Like when we get into this second tier, like I, I think absent somebody being in the ideal situation, like I said, from in Chicago, like I'm not sure I'd want any of these guys started week one. I think I think these are all guys that can play as rookies, but I think they're going to need a bit more of a glide path. The tier the tier one guys, Tua and Burrow, like if the medicals check out for Tua, I think he could start week one. 
Burrow should start week one. Like I'm, I'm okay with those guys playing right away. The other guys, I think, to a staggered extent, absent, like I said, from Chicago or something like that, they're going to need to be eased in a bit more. Maybe Herbert probably can come off the bench first. Maybe in the right situation, play week one. But I think a guy like Eason, a guy like Love, like those guys need to get eased in. A guy like Hertz as well. Do you think if you were going to had recommended to any of the underclassmen who came out, do you think Eason would have been the one that you would have recommended that going back to school could have helped his cause the most? Cause I I've had this conversation with people and I said, I don't think if Jordan love went back, it would, unless he transferred somewhere and was able to play immediately. I don't think going back to Utah state would have, would have really changed the narrative on him. And I think that's why he ended up coming out even after a poor year, yeah. you know, I, I, so many of the other guys, even if Fromm went back, would he really have changed a narrative? Maybe he would have put up, maybe he could have put up a, a better statistical year, but his physical limitations that some people have concerns are, they're still going to be there in a year. I keep coming back that if one guy maybe would have went back and really improved his stock, it would have been Easton. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. I think Easton could have benefited from one more year. Like I still understood why he came out like, you know, you're looking ahead to next year. Like you've got obviously Trevor Lawrence, got Justin Fields. Like you might be a crowded class. Like with to his injury, with some of the questions about Herbert and some of these other guys, it makes sense for Eason from a sort of business decision. But I think as the evaluation process and the learning to play the quarterback position part of it goes, he could have benefited. I think absent love maybe transferring to an SEC school and like playing like and showing like yeah, I can play SEC level football. I think it made sense for him to come out and like the other guys like from like, what else is from going to show to us that we haven't seen already on film? Like we've got a lot of tape on this kid. We know what he is. Like he's not going to change that narrative on him at all. He's not going to change that evaluation at all. So yeah, I think Eason could have perhaps benefited, but I understand why he came out. Yeah. And it's not like anytime you got, you go back, it benefits you. We've seen a lot of guys over the years. I mean, even this year. Yeah. Matt Barkley. That's a prime example. Yeah. I mean, he probably saw his, stock go down multiple rounds yeah. even this year i don't think it's i don't think his stock is going to be impacted because i still think justin herbert goes top 10 but it sure feels like in the last 365 days people found a lot more things to to nitpick about justin herbert than they would have been doing last year so sometimes yeah. it's not always better to go back once you're in that spotlight for another whole year they some you know the evaluators just kind of look for other things and if you don't show that growth and improvement that sometimes could hurt you even more you know than than what you were going to show so i think i think that's an interesting thing if we turn this back to jordan love for a second i love the colts landing spot especially if they go out and get philip rivers and he's there for a couple years you 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 know love sits and learns behind him because obviously he's got you know an intriguing skill set but i kind of wanted to go a little bit more big picture here because i i find the jordan love interesting very fascinating and you could tie it into a couple guys from the last couple years where it seems like the evaluations, sometimes the statistical side of it really carry people's thoughts. Sometimes the physical attributes really carry people's thoughts, but then sometimes year to year, it, it doesn't, it, it goes up and down, ebbs and flows in terms of what the masses are. A couple of years ago, Josh Allen, a lot of question marks, looked at his productivity at Wyoming. A lot of people were down on him. You know, and then if we turn to the guy I wanted to really bring up and, and get your thoughts was was Daniel Jones. I sat here a year ago. I recently went back and listened to the beginning of that show, and I sat here and told me, and I said, Mark, 
tell me the Giants aren't going to draft Daniel Jones. And then fast forward five weeks later, I'm sitting there with Sig Bloom and, and Matt Wallman on their draft night podcast. And I'm on the clock and I, I look at my Twitter feed and I sort of pick and I was like, oh, no, they did it. Yep. And every Giant fan you know, for the most part, every Giant fan was frustrated that day. And, you know, I know for me, I wasn't even as down as some people. I thought he was a second round pick. I thought maybe, you know, an Andy Dalton type player. And then he gets into the Giants organization and I wanted to give him a fresh, clean slate. I I put everything behind and just evaluate him for what I saw then once he got there. And then I was I was blown away from preseason and even during the year. And he's got tons of things to work on. Yep. Ball security at the top of the list. Yep. But I think any any observer who takes their pre-draft bias out of it and doesn't want their pre-draft narrative to be right should have watched Daniel Jones this year and walked away with, I think I underestimated him. I mean... I followed you on Sigmund and Waldman's show, and we were all during my portion of the night just like pouring one out for you because we were just like (laughs) crushing the Giants for it. You know, I I wrote for Big Blue View that night. I used a sort of Game of Thrones reference, and I talked about that line that Queen Cersei said where every time a Targaryen is born – the gods flip a coin and it's either madness or greatness. And I said, that's basically what the giants are doing. Like this, I thought it was going to be madness. I had Brett Rippin ranked higher than Daniel Jones. And that might speak volumes about my quarterback rankings from last year, (laughs) but I didn't see it. I didn't see this. And I think part of it was this gets to the whole scheme aspect of the evaluation process. Because when you look at the offense, he was running that Duke 73, I think percent of his throws were zero and one step drops. So much of what he was doing was West coast friendly one or one or two receiver read concepts. A lot of like go flat, a lot of like two receiver stuff, a lot of quick game stuff. They tried to use his legs. And I thought, look, this is going to be like a West Coast guy. He's going to be limited. I don't know how he's going to handle NFL pockets. I don't know how he's going to handle adapted to maybe having to throw it downfield. He might be limited schematically. Then what did we see from him? Suddenly a guy that ball security issues aside can handle pressure well. Like you look back at his first game against the Bucks, when he's getting sacked five times or something like that, but still making some anticipation throws with guys in his face. Like I didn't see that at Duke, but he did it. You see him like start making some downfield throws, like the downfield throws to Slayton in preseason that translated to the regular season. And the fact that, look, what did they do? They hired Jason Garrett and Eric Coriel-based offensive mind to be the offensive coordinator. They're molding him to be a downfield thrower. Like, I didn't see that. Like, you also brought up Josh Allen. Two things that happened this year in the National Football League that absolutely blew my mind, that if you sat me down you know, before Josh Allen's draft – and before Daniel Jones' draft, and told me the following. Daniel Jones is going to be a good vertical passer in the National Football League. And Josh Allen is going to be a very good timing and rhythm-based passer in the National Football League, but he might struggle in the downfield parts of the game. I would have thought you were crazy. I would have <laughs> thought you were insane. There's no, there's absolutely no way. You've got to be lying to me. That's what we saw last year. Brian Dable turned Josh Allen into a timing and rhythm-based passer before our eyes, who was ranked 35th out of 35th in the downfield portion of the passing game. Like, I never would have imagined that. Same thing with Daniel Jones. Like I I would not have seen this coming based on his film. But that's the part of the evaluation process that we sort of on in the media, on the outside, we don't really get a chance to see because we don't get a chance to pick up the phone and call Cutcuff and say, look, 
if you had the athletes that Nick Saban does at Alabama or that Ed Ogeron does at LSU, what offense would you want Daniel Jones running? We don't get to ask him that question because I guarantee you the Dave Gettleman's of the world did. And they probably said, look, I think you could fit a downfield passing game. It's just because of the athletes we had, we couldn't block a lot enough to run that kind of offense. And so we had to get the ball out quickly, you know, and some people sort of nibbled around that. I think I, I wrote a couple of things like that. Like maybe it was because of the talent they had around them. They had to run this offense, but we don't get that luxury. You know, we don't get call up Josh Allen's coach and say, look, what do you think this guy can be in the NFL? And so that's part of the disconnect. Like we can only go based on what we're seeing on tape. And sometimes we get people that we talk to that might fill us in on bits and pieces, but it's never the full picture. The NFL gets the full picture. They still get it wrong. And so the fact that like guys like me, like whiffed on Daniel Jones, like, so did the teams that passed on him. You know, so did the teams that could have drafted a quarterback and passed on him. You mentioned Trubisky. Ryan Pace traded up to draft Mitchell Trubisky with Watson and Mahomes on the board. Like, guys in the league, men and women in the league that do this for a living year-round, 24-7, with all the information they have access to, they get it wrong, too. So did I whiff on Daniel Jones? Yeah. Did I whiff on Josh Allen in a sense? Yeah. Did I whiff on Brett Rippon? Yeah. Am I whiffing about you know the 18 names we could talk about tonight in this year's class? Probably a bunch of them, but that's sort of the nature of it. It's such a tough thing to do, evaluate quarterbacks, especially with the limited information we get access to. Do you think the NFL looks at, you know, listen, they're, they're still detractors for Josh Allen and Daniel Jones. And I think some oh, yeah. of that comes from some of that comes from the pre-draft takes. I don't think the bills are upset that Josh Allen's their quarterback. And I don't think the giants are upset right now that Daniel Jones is their quarterback. Does that mean they're going to win super bowls or be perennial contenders? We don't know yet that so much will go into that. But I think right now the bills and the giants are happy and content with the choices they made. Do you think those two guys kind of set the stage a little bit for why the NFL is maybe even higher on Jordan Love than what you are and what other people, you know, do they look at, you know, they look at what Josh Allen's done and how little he had at Wyoming and Daniel Jones, you just talked about it, how little he had at Duke to really help him. Do you think sometimes it, that's what the NFL's doing when, when we hear, you know, all, all we heard during the whole combine was Jordan Love, you know, how many reports came out from big guys, Lewis yep. Riddick, Ian Rappaport, yep. you know, one after the other, I'm probably forgetting others, like how much Jordan Love was being talked about. I mean, for God's sakes, Mel Kuyper and Todd McShay have a $5,000 charity bet of yep. what quarterback's going to go higher between Jordan Love and, and Justin Herbert. So it's a legitimate question in NFL circles. Do you think part of it is they've seen some of the success from guys like Jones and and uh, Josh Allen who were playing with very little, and they say, well, Jordan Love can be that also? I think that's a very good point, Paul, because you know what's weird is we've started to do it in reverse, in a sense, in sort of the media world. You know, us that you know we're not on the sort of ESPN, we're not on four letter networks. You know, we you've heard murmurs of well. You know, two was playing with a bunch of first round talent at wide receiver or, you know, look, Burrow, you know, the offense wasn't really just Joe Brady and what he was doing. So, you know, there are murmurs on the other edge of the, you know, the spectrum where it's like, how good are they really going to be? What's going to happen to Joe Burrow when, you know, he's suddenly playing with guys that aren't Justin Jefferson? You know, he's not playing for Joe Brady in that offense or two is not throwing to rugs and Judy, you know, so it is, it does sort of take place on the other end of the scale. But I think in the NFL, they're, they're of the mind that, look, all the guys are going to be good. 
So Burrow's going to be playing with good guys yet again. So we're not worried about that. A guy like Jordan Love or Josh Allen a year before or two years before or Daniel Jones last year, he's going to be playing with incredible talent for the first time. Like it's so, yeah, the fact that he maybe struggled at times when you're throwing three interceptions down in Death Valley, well, you're going to be throwing late in that game because you're losing. But they also might look at the throw he had on the post route to his tight end early in the game outside the red zone that if it's caught, it's a walk-in touchdown and Utah State's in that game early. And who knows what kind of conversation we're having with old Jordan Love if they go down to Death Valley and lose by five or who knows, imagine they if they steal that game. And, and so, you know, I think you're exactly right. Like NFL scouts and general managers and those type, they're looking at, the fact that guys from lesser schools have come out and been extremely successful, that some of these guys have that sort of trump card they can rely on, whether it's Allen and his arm or Allen and his arm and athleticism or Jones and his, you know, whether it's his competitive toughness or his leadership ability or whatever, or this year love with his arm or even Carson Wentz. People had questions about, yeah, it's an FCS school, but North Dakota state, that's like the Alabama of the FCS. Like how's that going to translate? Well, it's translated pretty well other than perhaps some injury stuff. So I think that's right. They're looking at these guys at perhaps some lower levels of competition and thinking when they get some talent around them, like we're going to have with a built-in forum, they'll be able to thrive. Yeah, absolutely. I think, I think it's great points here. So as, as we uh, conclude tonight, one last question, I want to open the floor to you. We talked about pretty much, I think the seven guys who have a legitimate shot, probably all seven go off the board in the top three rounds. Give me a couple of your diamond in the roughs on day three that you are most intrigued with and, and maybe a, a quick synopsis on a few guys and, and why you're intrigued by them that maybe in the perfect situation down the line, we could be, they could become more names, more that the general public will, will one day find out about if, if, if everything works out perfectly. Yeah, so that next tier of quarterbacks, I've got five in that next tier that I think, you know, these are the guys that if your team's on the clock sometime on day three and you don't have an immediate need for a quarterback, you want to take sort of a developmental type, like I'd be, you should be happy that your team takes us because I see developmental potential. So I'll, I'll sort of run through them quickly. Um, first up is Anthony Gordon. I just, I love this kid. Um, I love sort of the aggression he shows. I love his understanding of leverage. Like I love the progression offense, talking to him out in Indy when, you know, he's again, similar to Gardner Minshew a year before talking about the Mike Leach air raid and how it is a progression based offense and asking him about why cross. He's like, yeah, I'm reading that go to the cross, to the dig, to the curl. That's a four step process. Every single play. Like, I think he's got some potential to him. He needs to fix the footwork. Um, but I think, in a developmental setting, he could be ideal. Um, I am back on Cole McDonald Hill. I started the summer on Cole McDonald Hill. I came off of it a little bit after he threw four picks against Arizona in the opener and got benched. And you're like, what are we doing here? Like, what have I done this summer to myself? But then you see the progression over the course of the year. You see his bowl game against BYU. You see the whole shot he made on a game-winning touchdown drive. You see some of the strides he made mechanically. You know, I love his mental approach. You know, I was talking to him at the combine about, you know, the run and shooting. He's talking about their streak read concept where it's four verts, but every route converts and stuff like that. Like that's NFL type stuff. And, and so I think, you know, he's somebody that obviously will need, a, you know, some time to season, but. I'd be fine if my team took him. Jake Lutton from Oregon State. You know, I'm I'm fascinated by the arm. I'm fascinated by the athleticism. You know, I think he has some mechanical things to clean up. He has 
like we've sometimes seen with tall quarterbacks that lower body, upper body disconnect where the lower body mechanics aren't always right. He has that straight leg situation, but he's somebody I think there's something there to work with. Nate Stanley from Iowa, a similar sort of discussion to Fromm. I think there will be some teams that will really sort of like him. I think Pittsburgh might like him. I think New England might like him. You know, he does some of that NFL type stuff. They're fixing his mechanics. I know he's working with Tony Rakopi, trying to make him more vertical in the pocket. That's what Nate told me out in Indy. Um, but I think, you know, he's somebody I was interested to watch this year because he didn't have Hawkinson. He didn't have Noah Fant. So he was trying to like adjust to life without two huge security blankets. I think he made some strides. I think he throws a really nice ball. He has an NFL arm. And so I'm excited to see him. And finally, Tyler Huntley, the kid from Utah. I think if I'm Sean Payton and I've made, you know, all these statements about, you know, what I've got in Taysom Hill, we know we're getting Breeze back. Bridgewater's probably on his way out. I think Tyler Huntley can run Sean Payton's offense and run it well. I was very impressed by his ability to make throws from the pocket. Obviously, like he has some athleticism to him. I think he's one of those guys that you need that mobility now in the NFL game, and he has that. I think he throws a really nice ball at times, best of the short and intermediate area, extremely efficient quarterback as well. I think the 25th highest efficiency rating in FBS history this past season. And so I was impressed watching him on film. And so that's that next tier, Paul. Those are the guys that I think – if my team needs a quarterback, a developmental guy sometime on day three, and one of these guys are on the board, you know, depending on scheme fit and stuff like that, offensive style, I'd be happy with my team taking any one of them. Yeah, there was a couple of names there that I know piqued my interest. Cole McDonald and, and Jake London are two guys probably uh, that I think their upside intrigues me. You know, I think Anthony Gordon, I think if you need him, I think he could be a good high level backup, Anthony Gordon. But like I if I was that. shooting, if I was shooting for a guy that could develop into a starter from that group that you just mentioned, I would gamble on McDonald. And yeah. I think Ludden is another guy that he, I was a little late to, to the game on him, but when I watched him, I was, I was intrigued with him those would probably be the two guys from, from that, that list that you just talked about that intrigued me the most but I think it's gonna be fun I think we're probably looking at you know somewhere in that you know 11 if seven quarterbacks potentially go in the top 100 I think we're looking probably at a year that we might have 12 or 13 quarterbacks drafted you know in the seven rounds because there are some interesting day three developmental guys so even even if you have a splattering you know one or two in round four you know, one in round five, all of a sudden that adds up that we could easily be seeing five to seven taken on day three, probably added on to the seven that we saw on day on uh, the first two nights. So we're, all of a sudden you're talking about 14 quarterbacks, give or take. And I think that probably would be more than we're accustomed to. I think usually we're more in that like 10, 11 range. So to see to see potentially 14 names or so come off the board, I think would be really interesting. That so, would be fantastic, man. I would love to see it. It'd be great for the brand. Absolutely. Mark, thank you so much. Uh, always a pleasure. Please, I'm sure most of my audience knows where to follow you, knows what you're working on. Uh, but please let uh, let everybody know uh, what, you, what you're working on, anything that's in the upcoming works that you want to share. Paul, thanks so much for having me on. Huge fans of both both of you and Matt. You guys do such great work. The Saturday to Sunday podcast, it's such great stuff. You know, the, the draft guides that you guys put together, it's all tremendous work. And I'm just... You know, could be happier for the success you guys have had. It's just such so great to see. That's for me. You can follow me on Twitter at Mark Schoolfield. But you know, newest spot touchdown wire NFL wire over at USA Today with Doug Ferrar. But other places like Matt Waldman's rookie scouting portfolio, 
a um, bunch of different SB Nation websites, including Big Blue View, which we've talked about, uh, Bleeding Green Nation, where I co-host the QB Sco Show with Michael Kist, and over at Pat's Pulpit, where I host the Sco Show, which is you know, maybe 70% Patriots, 29% quarterbacks, and 1% Toto. <laughs> Guys, make sure you're following all of Mark's work. Make sure you're checking out those uh, podcasts with him and Matt Wallman. Absolutely great stuff. Listening to them, guys, uh, break down and talk about uh, so many of these prospects. So make sure you're, you're following all of that. Guys, on behalf of Mark, on behalf of our sound tech engineer, David Nakano, and myself, thank you for joining us. And we look forward next time taking you from Saturday to Sunday.